And I want to share with you a message that I've titled One Way Love. It's really going to be the first part of a two-part message so that you don't all have that great longing for a burger, all right? We've split this in half, and uh, we'll, we'll break it into a couple of weeks. But I heard about a middle-aged married couple who one night around the dinner table was sharing a meal together. And then finally, the, the, the wife spoke out on something that had really been just a burden of her heart for quite a while. It's something she'd been mulling over for months, really. And she spoke to her husband, and she said, You know, back when we first got married, you used to fix the bigger plate and give it to me. And you took the smaller plate, and you kept it to yourself. But now, I've noticed that you keep the larger plate for yourself, and you give me the smaller plate. And she, and she said, I'm starting to wonder, do you still love me? And, and her husband said, well, darling, it's, it's nothing to do with that. You're just a better cook than you were when we first got married. <laughs> we live in a society with this expectation of love where we expect that love must receive something in return. We expect that if we're going to be invested in a love relationship with someone else, then we're going to be getting a larger portion back, or at least an equal portion of what we meet out ourselves. And so we think that love, ultimately, in our society, we, we tend to think that love must be this two-way street. Not only do I express love, not only do I give love, but I expect that something coming in the other lane will be love directed back towards me. And most individuals would agree that if we're going to invest time in loving someone else, then we surely ought to expect their love to be returned to us. If we're going to send love down one lane towards someone else, then we ought to expect that love to be coming back to us in the opposite direction. And so in our society, individuals believe that love which is not reciprocated is not love at all. And that's one of the key reasons, I think, why the divorce rate is so high in our land in this day and age. Individuals who once fell in love, so to speak, later find that the one who used to go to above and beyond to open the door and to do things and to make those special meals and to send those little love letters now no longer does those little deeds which show the above and beyond sort of love, this reciprocal love, this sort of love that I've come to expect. And so they begin to say to themselves, and they begin to say to others, the love between us is gone. I just can't keep giving of myself and expecting nothing in return. We're no longer in love. Some of you have heard individuals say that sort of thing. Some of you have said that thing yourself. Some of you are experiencing emotions that would cause you to question this very thing right now in your own life. And by the high divorce rate of those who once proclaimed that they were in love, so to speak, our society makes a statement that love must be returned if love is going to be legitimate. And the same expectation is present in other realms where we talk about love and expect love or hope that love would be thriving. And I'm talking namely about our family and our friendships, right? We expect that love would be thriving in those realms, but we also expect that to be a, a, a reciprocal sort of love. 
And we're generally only willing to love others so long as they're willing to make this love a two-way street. And so often I hear individuals talk about how they've given up on a certain family member because they've just given of themselves time and time and time again and that person has just shown that they are not going to budge, they are not going to move, they're not going to return that love to them. They just continue to take that sort of thing for granted. Or sometimes love is taken for granted by friends who decide to neglect you and spend their time with others and their energy and their affection are invested in someone else even though you've continued to pour the same sort of thing and they've come to expect the same sort of thing from them. And then let's just face it, some individuals are just downright hard to love. Are they not? I mean, we all know them, right? We've probably all got a crazy uncle of some sort out there, right? Someone or maybe a friend or a coworker, or someone in our lives that's just plain hard for us to love. We've tried time and time again, but we found through our efforts that it's a very hard sort of thing to do and we send all of our love and what we end up with is just more heartache because that's all they're sending back to us in that other lane. And so you give generously, you give more and more, but all they do is expect that more and more and more will come of you. You make yourself vulnerable and they take advantage of you. You spend your love on them and they never seem to return on your investment. And so you begin to think this love isn't worth the investment. I'm not getting back what I put into this thing which I'm trying to do. And so the question that Jesus really wants us to deal with as we come to Luke chapter 6 in God's word here today is this. Is love really love when it doesn't get anything in return? Is there such a thing as a sustainable one-way love? And if so, what are the conditions of that love? Who should I love unconditionally in a one-way sort of manner if that is indeed what God calls me to do? How much should I be willing to sacrifice before it's acceptable for me to give up on loving someone else? And how can I measure whether I am loving in a way that lives up to my Creator's expectations? Now, last, season, last Sunday, we saw Jesus calling these 12 men who would spend their lives with Him in this purposeful training for two to three years, preparing to be the ones who would carry on his work as the church once he ascended into heaven. He called these 12 disciples from among this whole gathering of disciples. And he began to spend his life with them. He began to invest in them. And as a matter of fact, right after calling them, we see that in, in Luke that Jesus turns his gaze toward them and he begins to give this sermon that we're now spending a, a kind of a series within a series focusing on. And I've titled this series Discipleship 101 because this is Jesus with his disciples that he has called beginning at the very basic ground of what they need to know as they prepare to be the ones who would carry on his work once he has ascended into heaven. And so here we have Jesus kind of laying out as the master teacher for these 12 fresh enrollees and those who would be studying under him. What are the basics that you need to know in terms of following me? 
And so that's why I'm calling this Discipleship 101. Because Jesus is now teaching these individuals. And as he teaches them, he steps down onto what Luke describes as basically a flat place. That's why some individuals would call this the Sermon on the Plain. There are some debates about whether or not this is the same thing as what we find in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. A mountain and a plain tend to be two different things, right? They could potentially be the same sermon with Luke pulling from similar material of other disciples that he'd had the chance to interact with. Really, that makes no difference because there are essential truths that we all need to know as disciples of Jesus Christ if we are going to follow him. These are foundational truths for being a follower of Jesus. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus' disciples must be different from the world in the way that they love others. The world expects love to be a two-way street, but followers of Jesus must be prepared to give their lives in a one-way sort of love. We must be willing to love others, even when there's little chance, if any chance, of that love being returned toward us. And so let's look now at how Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, shows us Christ's commands to live with a one-way love. And so if you're able, I'd ask you now just to stand to honor the reading of God's Word as we read together. Starting in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, hear the words of our Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Here ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. And so as we look into Luke chapter 6, verses 27, we're we're really going to stop around verse 31 with our examination here today. But as we look into these verses today, I want to show you three of six characteristics of one-way love, the sort of love that Jesus calls for his disciples to display in their interactions with other individuals. And the first of these is this. One-way love selects an unconventional target. Let me say that again. One-way love selects an unconventional target. What do you mean by that? Well, in these opening verses, Jesus calls us to love. We're all the way into Luke chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Luke's gospel. And this is the very first time that the word love appears in that gospel. 
And as Jesus starts to describe love for us here in this sweet, pleasurable word, which is music to so many of our ears, he speaks about love in a way that is just unconventional, a love that is different than what we're expecting from him. Jesus tackles this topic of love, but the target of the love that he describes in verses 27 and 28 is not the target that we expect. And conventional wisdom says that you should love those who are special to you. You should love those who have some sort of special relationship with you. You should love those who are good to you. You should love those who are lovely to you. That's what conventional wisdom says. But Jesus goes straight for the jugular in terms of our understanding of what love is when he calls for us to exemplify love toward this particular target. Who is it that he calls us to love? He calls for his disciples to love and to do good and to bless and to pray for the people who are least likely to return that love to us. Who are they? They are our enemies. Jesus says to love your enemies. They're the individuals who do the opposite of returning our love to them. They hate us. And Jesus says, do good to them. They curse us. And Jesus says, bless them. They mistreat us. And Jesus says, pray for them. Do you see how this breaks with every convention of what we tend to think of as the objects who we ought to be displaying our love toward in our society? And in these verses, it's interesting to note that Jesus shows us a little bit more of what love is than what we tend to attribute to love. Love isn't just this noun. Love isn't just a word used to describe some happy feeling of butterflies in your stomach. Love is a verb. Love is something that takes action. Love is something that gets involved in the lives of others. Love does something. And one way love does something is to do good to those who hate you. Now, oftentimes, when somebody hates us and we find that there's a conflict with someone who is obviously out against us, we think of ourselves like we've done a good job if we just kind of keep ourselves together, if we've held our temper, if we haven't shown off in the midst of a circumstance like that. But Jesus doesn't call for us just to hold our tempers. He calls for us to extend our hands. He calls for us to do good. He's essentially saying, don't just stand there and think happy thoughts about those who despise you. Do something for their benefit. Love them. Because that's what one way love does to those who hate you. And likewise, one way love blesses those who curse you. Now there's something that we're going to have some trouble with, right? How many times... When, when someone does you wrong, do, do those of you who are here get excited and can't wait to share that, what that lousy person has done with someone else? I mean, you just can't wait to get on the phone and talk to somebody else about, oh, you won't believe what so-and-so did to me. They've done me so wrong. Or you can't wait to get into that holy huddle with your other friends and talk about, oh, you, you won't believe what this person did against me. And we find ourselves in the midst of these conflicts with other people. Someone's rude to you at work, and you, and you 
are involved in putting them in their place because you feel like that is your proper response in that moment. This is ultimately the root of what the Bible describes as gossip or slander. Gossip is really just a matter of confessing someone else's sins for them. It's one of the way one of my seminary professors described it. I, li- I like that definition. Gossip is just confessing someone else's sins for them. I'm going to tell you about what so-and-so did. And, oh, it was so wrong. Let me, let me tell you about their sins. Instead of going directly to that person, what you're doing is you're tearing down their name. You're slandering them in the midst of that conflict. And this is ultimately the root of that, that dangerous gossip, that dangerous slander. Is that blessing those who curse you? Of course not. And the love that Jesus wants you to have is ultimately the love that is expressed toward even the least lovely person in your life. It's a love that longs for that least lovely person in your life to experience the blessings of God. It's a love that desires for that least lovely person to come to know him, to experience his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, his liberating, everlasting love. And so we must ask ourselves a question. Who are my enemies, right? I mean, if I'm going to love my enemies, I've got to have some idea of who they are. And that's a question we've all got to be kind of open and honest with, right? Because sometimes we tend to think, well... I get along with pretty much everybody, but the reality is we've all got some enemies, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And so we've got to ask ourselves, who are my enemies? Who hates me? Who curses me? Who mistreats me? And certainly there are some broad categories that kind of unite us together as Christians on this front, right? As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There's no other way to, to gain God's eternal favor than through Jesus Christ the Lord who died in our place, the only righteous one who could ever bear the penalty which was rightfully ours. We believe that Jesus is the only way. And that puts us at odds with much of the world around us. It puts us at odds with individuals who think that you can work your own way to heaven, who think that there's some matter of works that you can do. It puts us at odds with members of Islam because we do not believe that Muhammad can get you to heaven. We do not believe that that Buddha will get you into heaven. We do not believe that your own works of self-righteousness will ever build for you a high enough mound to outweigh the sin which is against a holy and righteous and unblemished God. And that puts us at odds with folks, right? Sometimes that comes up in the public square where individuals do not want us to have a voice. They don't want us bringing our Christian morality to bear upon the public square. Sometimes it comes out in the matter of terrorists who in a religious zeal for their own thoughts on how individuals should be earning their way to God, find that they think they need to eradicate the rest of the world of the very thing that we stand for. Others find any number of ways to be opposed to us who are Christians. And so there's this common thread that we all share in here. And in a number of ways, others are opposed to us as Christians. How should we respond to them? Well, Jesus says that we are to love them and do good to them and to bless them and pray for them. 
Now, some of us are mistreated or hated or cursed for other reasons. You may be hated by some, someone else because of the color of your skin. You, you may be cursed because you go against the grain at the workplace and you don't do what everybody else does around there. You may be someone's enemy because you've actually done something deliberately wrong to them in the past. And they're holding a grudge against you. Some individuals may hate you because you refuse to compromise on certain issues. And truly, sometimes we may just not understand why other people hate us. We can't always see into the heart. We can't always have the clear visibility that understands why an individual would hate us. And Jesus just doesn't put any qualifications on this for us. So we can't just excuse, excuse what our, our responsibility is in this matter. Jesus doesn't put qualifiers on enemies. He doesn't say, love those enemies who you think might come out of that nonsense and start to treat you right later on. He doesn't say, love those who hate you because of something you've done wrong. Jesus simply commands us to live with a one-way love that seeks the benefit of our enemies, no matter what has made them our enemies. And it's a shame to say, but some of us have seen times when the greatest enemies and the worst curses and the greatest mistreatment that Christians can face comes from other Christians in the midst of the body of Christ. My friends, it should never be this way. But so often we've seen this sort of thing in the past, right? Where these political alliances form within a church and all of a sudden brother turns against brother. And good motives are mistaken for ill motives. Or differences in methodology that don't impact the message are taken to be something that is a hill worth dying on. And individuals align themselves on either side. And there's a division within this holy and pure body of Christ we know as the church. And the next thing you know, people are, are, are skipping over aisles in the grocery store so that they don't have to have that awkward face-to-face -face meeting with someone who's in their own church and have that sort of you know, rough conversation that I just really don't want to have. Or you've got brothers or sisters who are gathering together in these holy huddles talking about one another rather than speaking to one another about the things that they have issues with in the body of Christ in these moments because of a lack of one-way love finds itself in moments of turmoil. Brother turns against brother. Sister turns against sister. Nobody's willing to bridge the gap in what is needed. What is needed in these moments? Is it not love? Is, is the very God who has called us and saved us not himself love? If there's a place where love should be found, it is in the body of the one who has come to show such a great love that he gave himself to die on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that is a mission of love. And that is the Lord of the church. And so does, does any of you have something to say against someone else in the body of Christ? And I'm not just talking about this fellowship. And this is not a matter of Jeremy detecting any visible 
fishers in our church. I'm not preaching at you. This is just a matter of the heart that I think should be dealt with as we get to God's Word that talks here about how we are to love one another because if we're not shored up against this sort of thing, it will sneak in like an enemy and will attack us in the dark of night. And my friends, I hope that you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if they do some goofy things, and I'm going to do some goofy things, you better be ready for it. They just don't make sense sometimes, right? Because Jeremy's fallen. Jeremy is broken. Jeremy is in the process of being remade thanks to the glory of Christ and his grace expressed in me. But there's going to be some things that we goof up, and we've got to have a compassion. We've got to have a one-way love that is ready, short up, to deal with this sort of thing because Christ has this for us to do according to his word. And I also ask you who are Christians, which of your enemies are you actively now in your life loving? Which of your enemies are you doing good to? Which of your enemies are you encouraging and speaking well of and blessing? Or let's make this real practical. Think of your prayer life over the past month. Who among the individuals that you would consider to be an enemy have you been praying God's blessings upon? Because this is what Jesus is calling us to do in our text here today. And I think for some of us, this needs to be an eye-opener, Jeremy included, that more of my time needs to be spent on my knees praying for those who are apart from Christ and those who might have a less than favorable sort of opinion of me. Because that's the sort of love that we're called to. That's what Jesus commands us to do. One-way love selects an unconventional target. That's the first characteristic of one-way love. The second one is this. One-way love directs a personal sacrifice. One-way love directs a personal sacrifice. We've already said that the love Jesus calls us to display is a love that calls for us to step into action. Well, now Jesus goes on to show us how committed we ought to be to that action. Should we only love individuals as long as we're staying out of harm's way? Should we only act in love so long as it doesn't cost us anything physically ourselves? No, Jesus shows us that one-way love directs a personal sacrifice. One-way love is a costly love. One-way love will take from us in ways that We will not, this side of heaven, see any return on. And so, we come to some of the most familiar and yet some of the most challenging commands that our Lord ever issued. Here in this sermon, we find the basis of why we talk about, for example, turning the other cheek. Or or why we talk about giving the shirt off of our back. Because these are hard challenges, hard calls of Jesus, costly commands of Christ, which he gives us here in these verses that show us that we ought to be offering through one-way love a great sacrifice. And Jesus shows us by giving these four practical scenarios for us where one-way love directs this sort of personal sacrifice. The first one is when someone hits you on the cheek. Now, in Jesus' day... Slapping someone with the backside of your hand was, was, a, was a bit of a way of expressing that you were insulting someone. So this was just a matter of, of a way of insulting someone. Now, when you and I are insulted, what's our typical way of responding to that? 
want to give a bigger insult, right? I mean, you, you say something about my mama, I'm going to say something even bigger about your mama, right? You better be ready because I got my mama, my mama's protected, right? We're, we're going to cover my mama by taking care of your mama next, right? And, and, and so there's also this tendency within us that, that if we find that someone has actually physically struck us, right? If we're bigger and stronger, what's the tendency in that moment? Well, we're going to give a bigger whop back, right? We're going we're to lay someone on the floor or whatever the case may be. There's a, there's a tendency within us that when we experience these things, when we are insulted, when we are assaulted, we are going to respond with an even greater response. But Jesus here has some challenging, challenging words for us because how does he tell us to respond? He tells us to turn the other cheek. That is, he says, don't only endure the abuse of your enemy. Make yourself vulnerable. Put yourself out there again. I think so often what happens is when we are insulted, when we are abused, when we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict with someone that we were trying to love, what we do is we tend to go into our fortresses. We tend to go into our homes. I'm not going to put myself out there to that person anymore. And the church becomes this fortress where we're happy with the people who are in here, but we're not going to dare go out to those who have insulted us or wounded us in the past. And what Jesus says is keep putting yourself out there. Keep making yourself available. Keep showing one way love. Be relentless in your love for others, even when it brings you emotional or physical pain to do so. The next scenario Jesus gives is when someone takes away your coat. Now, why would somebody take your coat? Well, there's a number of things we can think of. Jesus ultimately doesn't tell us, but maybe they're cold, right? Maybe they're cold and they didn't know the coat was yours, right? Maybe, maybe they're just not thinking, they're confused, and they think that coat is their own. Maybe they just can't afford a coat and they assume that you wouldn't miss your coat because they've seen you wearing multiple coats in the past. Or maybe they're just malicious and they want to steal from you. Jesus doesn't put any qualifiers on what he says here. Regardless of the circumstances, Jesus says when someone takes away your coat, this outer garment that you're wearing, don't refuse your shirt from him either. And that's not in our nature, is it? That's not the way we want to respond. When someone takes something of ours, we tend to demand it back. Or we take everything else that we've got and we, you know, we padlock it up with 18 different padlocks. So nobody's getting to that stuff now, right? That's mine. Somebody took it before, it ain't happening again, right? But Jesus gives this persistent expectation when someone is malicious toward his followers or demanding something from them, they will go above and beyond what is expected to show a shocking one-way love and jesus challenges our tendency to see things as ours and to hold them to ourselves by saying these words give to everyone who asks of you in verse 30 whoa these are hard sayings are they not this path of following jesus is a hard thing to do i think so often we tend to lower the bar so low that what is left of what we call Christianity is something so different than what Christ has called us to. 
And yet these are hard commands. But there is a greater reward in store, my friends. Who should I give to? Jesus is everyone who asks me to. And we start to see one of the potential ways that those who we looked at last week, remember we looked at the Beatitudes, and Jesus is talking about who's blessed, who's cursed. He talks about how the blessed ones are, those who are hungry, those who are poor. We start to get an idea of how they became so hungry and so poor because they were so generously giving of themselves to others that they became famished, they became impoverished in the process. And that's a challenge. That's a tough life to live. But that's a high calling from a most worthy Savior. And surely some of those who were blessed in Jesus' eyes for being poor and hungry got that way because they were relentless in their sacrificial generosity, their one-way love toward others. Then Jesus challenges our propensity to demand a return for what's been taken from us, right? If I'm lending to someone else, I expect for them to lend something to me later on. I expect them to give me something in return. But what does Jesus say? Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Friends, this is radical. One-way love is radical love. It's a love that gives of itself and endures every wrong so that love may ultimately prevail. One-way love directs us to personal sacrifice. That's the second characteristic of one-way love. The third one is this. One-way love respects the interests of others. One-way love respects the interests of others. In verse 31, we come to this condensed statement that instructs Jesus' disciples on how they should think about every action they take toward their fellow man. And we have a name for what Jesus commands in this verse when he says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. What's the, what's, what's the phrase we use to describe that? The golden rule. Thank y'all. Thank you. All two of you who mumbled. The golden rule. Yes, that's right. The golden rule. This ought to be etched into the ethics behind every decision that we make regarding our fellow man if we are a follower of Christ. It's a golden rule for us. This is our standard for how we interact with our fellow man. What is it that Jesus tells us to do? Does he say here, treat others the way that they have treated you? No, that's not the golden rule, right? But if all you knew was the example of many Christians, you would think that that was probably the essence of the golden rule, would you not? What about, does, does Jesus say this, treat people without, who can benefit you later on the way that you would want them to treat you? No, he doesn't add that qualifier either does he without qualifiers jesus simply says treat others the way you want them to treat you well how can we do that right how can we treat others the way we want them to treat us well there's a little bit of sympathy that's needed here maybe even a little bit of empathy where we've got to step into the shoes of our neighbor we've got to understand a little bit of what our neighbor is struggling through I mean, if, if we're, if we're gonna really going to look at the situation of our neighbor and say, if I was in those shoes, here's how I would want to be treated, then we've got to know a little bit about what our neighbor's going through, do we not? We've, we've got to put a, put a little bit of vulnerability into our lives to be willing to go out and say, let me get to know my 
neighbor. Let me go to where my neighbor is. Let me learn my neighbor's struggles. Let me figure out a little bit of why my neighbor acts in this way. Maybe my neighbor is my enemy. Maybe there's a good reason behind that. Maybe there is some way that the gospel and how I've seen Christ work in my life or in the life of others can become for this individual something that would bring aid, something that would bring healing, something that would bring life. But we've got to make ourselves vulnerable. Now Jesus doesn't here say that we should act always in a way that's according with our neighbor's desires, right? He doesn't say do unto others what they desire for you to do. Because ultimately we've all got plenty of desires, right? And so often for us, often those desires are incorrect, wrong-headed, wrong-hearted sort of desires. So Jesus doesn't say treat others the way they want you to treat them. The driving desire for Jesus' disciples is what we would want if we were in their situation. And if you know Christ, if you truly know him, but your enemy doesn't know of his amazing grace, what, what would be the best thing for your enemy in that moment? Well, you've got to imagine those tables turned, right? Knowing what you know about what Jesus has done for you, what would you want your neighbor to do if he was the believer and you weren't the believer? You'd want your neighbor to show you the love of Christ. You'd want your neighbor to guide you into the truth of the gospel. You'd want your neighbor to display for you this one-way sort of love that ultimately is the love that we've received in him. It's a testimony of him. It points others to him. You'd want your neighbor to lead you to him. But you know what? None of this matters if I don't know my neighbor. None of this matters if I don't put myself in the presence of my enemies. Because it's easy for me to sit on my couch watching whatever I've got queued up on the DVR and to say I don't have any enemies, right? It's easy for me to stay there in the midst of my air conditioning and say I don't, I don't know of anyone else who needs me to do something for them. Because I am not going to where they are. But when we look at the supreme example of this, we find that Jesus himself left heaven's glories in order to come on a mission trip, my friends, in order that he might breathe our air and walk on our side and share our struggles so that he might know personally our greatest need. And that he might act personally to eradicate that need. And so, my friends, we must find opportunities to go to where our enemies are. We must find ways to put ourselves in the path of those who ultimately need to know Christ. We must keep our eyes open and our hearts ready to the respond to the needs of our neighbors. As I was studying this week, I came across an article with a relevancy that simply 
far too great for me to consider this to be a mere coincidence. Because here in our study, in our study through Luke, we're focusing on the golden rule with the impacts of Hurricane Florence consuming much of our state. And in my studies this week, I came across an article that a Texas pastor named Jeff Metters wrote last year while Hurricane Harvey brought great destruction and flooding to his state. And the title of that article, just listen to the coincidences kind of lining up here, or ultimately God's favor lining up here. The title of that article is Hurricane Harvey and the Golden Rule, Putting Jesus' Words into Action. And this article has some relevancy and some exemplary conduct for us as we think about how we are to live out this one-way sort of love. And so if you will, allow me to read for you just a few excerpts from Metter's article because I think it's very relevant for us as we consider how we respond in the midst of this tragedy to our neighbors. So Metter's writes this, and I'll quote at length. When Hurricane Harvey pummeled the greater Houston area, the church of the risen Lord Jesus responded in ways I've never seen. There are certain ethical situations which are often difficult to navigate, taking time, serious thought, counsel, and research. The answer to such questions, such situations, is simple. If Jesus is my Lord, then the golden rule isn't just decor for Sunday school rooms. The golden rule strapped a life vest on me and put me on a rescue boat. As the rain kept pouring and pouring and pouring, I looked out my window and saw my street draining smoothly but I started to hear of streets swelling with water. Ten minutes from my house, people were trapped. Single moms were in danger. The elderly needed immediate help. I couldn't stay home and watch Netflix anymore. The words of the Lord Jesus wouldn't let me kick up my feet while I heard that my neighbors were in need. I knew by faith something had to be done. A friend at church texted and said he found a boat, told me to meet him at a makeshift rescue and dispatch station. By faith, I was ready. Our boat cruised over a four-lane road covered in five feet of water. We went over mailboxes, cars, and docked our boat at the first address we were given. I hoped it was the right address. I couldn't see the numbers. Terry and his wife were trapped upstairs with three feet of water in their home. And the waters just kept rising. Terry, in his 60s, put paralyzed from the waist down and has limited use of his arms. We put him in a wheelchair, carried him downstairs, and hoisted him up into the boat along with his wife and their dogs. Here's, here's that mentality we need to have. If I were paralyzed and trapped upstairs in my flooding home, I'd want someone to rescue me. Sure, it was a little dangerous, but it would have been more dangerous to ignore my neighbor and walk on the non-flooded side of the street. Discipleship is always dangerous to self. Metters goes on, The golden rule in the ethics of loving thy neighbor as thyself is not complicated. What would you want done for you? Our Lord says, do that for them. If my home had six feet of water in it, destroying nearly everything hit by the polluted waters, photo albums, clothes, children's soccer cleats, what would I want my, to mud out my home by myself? Never. I would want, I would need others to help empty my garage, rip out the sheetrock, and carry scraps of waterlogged carpet to the curb. Jesus tells me what I should do. 
Whatever you'd want done for you, do it for them. Then he goes on to say, no ethics committee needs to be organized for these moments. It's simple and supernatural. The golden rule is so simple and monumental that it can be described in a single sentence, and yet it can summarize the law and the prophets. It's the aroma of faith in the reigning Nazarene. Don't sleep on the golden rule. It might toss you onto a rescue boat. Jesus' words may cause you to pick up a hammer, become an amateur dispatcher, or even make gallons of gumbo for a shelter. The golden rule may even cause you to slow down and listen to what someone else is going through. What would change in your life today as you live by faith in your crucified and risen Lord? How would the dew of the golden rule move you if you listen to Jesus? Rescue boats, demo crews, and donations for disaster relief come and go. Neighbors do not. Opportunities to live by faith are everywhere. Pick them. This is what matters, writes. Is that not relevant to what we're dealing with in our state now? Can you not hear the cry of those neighbors and see on television the destruction to their own homes? Is this not an opportunity for us, my friends, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us and there are many other opportunities like that my friends and so as we close here today i just want to ask you is there anyone that kind of came to mind in your heart in your life as we were talking through this idea of loving your enemies who really is in this animosity with you who really has some sort of conflict with you Maybe there's some need that you need to pray about. Lord, how can I get into this mode of one-way love? Maybe there's some releasing of your own heart and the the ice that's grown around in the midst of these conflicts that we all face in life where you just need to go and represent Jesus. Well, this opportunity is yours to come and to pray and to ask God to bring the melting that is needed to give you the fresh heart that can bring about the change, that can show that sort of one-way love. But ultimately, my friends, none of us would know anything of that sort of love were it not for Jesus himself. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but ultimately, Jesus is the ultimate display of this sort of love. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we had set ourselves as his chief opponents, Christ died, Christ gave, Christ loved us. He died so that we could have eternal life. He died in our place. He came as one giving one way of love. And the love of God is such that he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. My friends, don't take that love for granted. Let that love be something that transforms your heart and your life and finds you reconciled to him. And let that love be fuel for your life as you depart from this place not worrying about what kind of receipt you're going to get from an individual that you show love to now but thinking that ultimately we shall spend all of eternity in the presence of one who has shown the ultimate one way love would you pray with me father we praise you for the example of jesus our lord who has shown for us greater love than any of us could ever exhibit on our own 
But Father, if we are honest, we must confess that so often we take this love for granted. We receive the greatest riches of all of eternity, and then we go to our neighbor and treat them like they owe us something. So Father, help us in our marriages. Help us in our church. Help us in every avenue of life, with family members, with co-workers, with neighbors. Lord, help us to exhibit this sort of one-way love, which will show others evidence of what the true king of love has exhibited in our heart and in our lives. And may you be glorified as we pursue this very thing, Lord. Lord, if there are decisions that need to be made, if there are hearts that need to be reconciled to you, if there are, Lord, supplies that individuals need to seek from you as the good giver of every good and perfect gift, then, Father, I pray that in these moments we would take the opportunity to deal with those things as your spirit leads. May we, O oh Lord, be faithful to live this sort of one-way love. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.